Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's great to be with you this morning, be able to preach the Word together and sing together, even in small groups. Uh, and we have a wonderful passage to talk about today. So if you take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, as we enter into this last chapter of his argument, before he gets to some exhortation and applications in the chapters to come. And we continue to talk about our great high priest together. Hebrews 10, 1 through 10 is what we'll be this morning. So let's read. This is the word of God reading. Let's hear it together. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, and offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great and glorious triune God, we delight ourselves in you this morning and delight in the fact that you are a God that reveals your truth, reveals truth, the way you made the world, the way you created the world, and you've given us your plan for creation and your plan for redemption in your Son. Father, we rejoice in Jesus this morning, our great high priest. I pray that you would soften our hearts, help us to see all that our high priest has done for us. Help us to see the sufficiency of his last sacrifice, so that we may trust in him with all of our lives, with everything we have. And Father, help us to trust in him in such a way that helps us to worship you and praise your name forever. Lord, we thank you for this time together. May your spirit work in us to change us, to convict us, to help us to conform to the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I grew up as the son of a mechanic. My dad worked in construction most of my life. And I can remember from a very early age that he loved to fix things. And he had lots of tools for every occasion and, and liked to teach me how to fix things. So I learned from a young age to appreciate good tools to learn how to fix things myself. 
but when I got married, I had another problem. I, I had a really lousy tool collection. Um, I, I actually only had the tool collection my dad gave me, which was a small little case, had a screwdriver, a tape measure, I believe, and a little socket set, maybe a hammer. And that was it. That's all I had. It was pretty pitiful, actually. And so um, because I was cheap and a little lazy and stubborn, I ended up using a lot of the wrong tools for the job and making a lot of messes out of things that should have been easy. For example, I remember one time actually breaking two hammers on one nail. Um, it was a big nail, and I had a mallet. I busted the head off real quick, and then I had a little finishing hammer that I tried once and then tried harder, and it broke the head off of that too. Um, even another time, I tried to cut a hole for a cord in the back of our entertainment center, and, and I used uh, instead of using a drill and the bit like you're supposed to, I used a screwdriver and a chisel, and I ripped a hole in the back of our entertainment center. Fortunately, it was covered by the TV. Um, well, I did eventually get over some of that stubbornness and buy the right tools, and fortunately, YouTube came along to bail me out. Um, but I want to talk this morning how important it is to use the right tool for the job. I mean, if you had a block of wood and you wanted to drive a nail into that wood, you could use all kinds of things. You, you could use a book, I suppose. Uh, you could use a chair, a piece of metal, whatever you could find. And, and I suppose it would get the job done. But it would be tedious. It'd be difficult. I might hurt myself trying to do it or I'd break something and then have to go fix that with tools that aren't right. Um, but eventually the job would kind of get done, right? But then if you use the right tool, it's amazing how easy the job becomes. You start to realize, wow, it's almost like the people that design these tools know what they're doing. <laughs> if you've never had that experience, I hope you do one of these days. because It's an amazing feeling when that happens. Well, if it's important to think about tools in light of what they were made to do, how much more important is it to think about ourselves or God's Word or the church in light of what God designed us to do, in light of who He designed us to be? But it's so easy in this fallen world to get distracted and to miss the point and to forget the purpose that God made behind everything. And we forget His intention, His design. We end up making a mess of a lot of things, don't we? Well, Hebrews was written to a group of people that were kind of missing the point. They were starting to miss the point. They were using the wrong tool for the job. And it was creating a huge mess. If you remember, this book was written to Jewish Christians, people that walked away from the Jewish faith to follow Jesus. And as it got harder to follow Jesus and more difficult, they started to think about going back to the old covenant practices, the temple and the sacrifices and the priests, those obsolete ways of approaching God. And through the book of Hebrews, the writer has been almost screaming at them. You're missing the point. That old covenant system was never meant to make you right with God. It was never meant to wash away your sins. The old covenant system, the sacrifices, the priests, all of it had one purpose. And that's to point ahead to Jesus. Our better priest. Our better temple. Our sympathetic high priest. And our better sacrifice. And in Hebrews chapter 10, that really is the focus. That Jesus is 
the final, the last sacrifice, the better sacrifice than anything that would come before because he can wash away sins. Now, he's been working up for a while to get to this chapter. In fact, chapter 9 really sets up what this last sacrifice should be. Look at chapter 9, verse, 20, uh, verse 16. Excuse me. Chapter 9, verse 16. We begin to learn what this sacrifice is going to look like. It says, For where a will or covenant, right? We learned that's a covenant there. For a will or covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So we learn from that verse that a covenant demands death. Look down to verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So purification, forgiveness, demands bloodshed. Look at the very end of the chapter, verse 28, that sets up this brand new chapter. So Christ, having, offered, uh, having been offered once to do what? To bear the sins of many. So this salvation is going to demand a sacrifice, a substitution. So in chapter 9 alone, we've already learned that a covenant demands death, forgiveness, purification, demands bloodshed, and salvation will demand substitution. And then we get to chapter 10, and guess what we find? That Christ Jesus gave his life, shed his blood in the place of sinners like us. And we see the sacrifice of our great high priest in a whole new way. This chapter will focus tremendously on the character and nature of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we'll spend some, some weeks in this chapter, but today I really want to narrow in on one specific aspect of his sacrifice. The fact that Jesus is the last sacrifice. That he's the sufficient sacrifice. The, the long-awaited sacrifice. The final sacrifice because he is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Now we're going to see that last sacrifice in contrast to the old covenant sacrifices. Those shadows that we've talked about before. We'll talk about those in the first four verses. Those will be the limited sacrifices. And then verses 5 through 10, we'll talk about this last sacrifice of Christ. And next week, Chad will jump into the effects of this sacrifice through verse 18. So we'll focus on verse 1, the limited sacrifice. The limited sacrifices. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. Now I hope this already sounds familiar. In fact, most of this chapter should sound familiar because the author is repeating himself. Now he's not repeating himself because he forgot his argument. He's not repeating himself just to kind of say it again. He's making a point. He's solidifying. He's reviewing. He's trying to say, these things are essential if you're going to understand Jesus. So if you hear something familiar, that's the author saying, pay attention. Don't miss this. You can't understand your high priest and the sacrifice he made without this information. And what do we see repeated here? That the law is a shadow. In chapter 8, it said the tabernacle and the priesthood was a shadow of the heavenly realities. Now the law, and later what we, we see is described as the whole Old Covenant mosaic sacrificial system is a shadow of the good things to come. Now why is he calling these sacrifices shadows? Well, he's trying to clue us in, and really the readers, on the purpose, the intention of the law and these sacrifices. 
Notice he does not say that the law or the sacrifices are old. Right? They're, they're out of date. They're worn out. They're obsolete. They're, they're just old-fashioned or on the wrong side of history, right? Like we hear all the time. It's not that these, these laws are like a worn-out garment that needs to be thrown out or, or that Jesus has just come along to mend it and to fix it. No, that's not what he's saying. He also doesn't say the law is broken. The law is useless. The law is, is just broken and been given to us that way by God. That God kind of gave us a car with a check engine light on. Right? He gave us a broken system. He's not saying that at all. It's not that Jesus has come back to fix the law so it can be used again. Now what is he saying? He's not saying the law is deficient or imperfect or irrelevant. He's basically saying you're using it wrong. You're using the law, the sacrifices, in a way that God never intended. You're using it like someone trying to use a chair to nail in a nail. It was never meant to do that. It has a very limited purpose, which is what? We'll look at verse 1, the second part of verse 1. We'll see what they were using it for, and then we'll see the purpose in verse 2. Verse 1, part 2 there, starting when it says, It, that's the law, the Mosaic system, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So what were they trying to do with the law? They were trying to approach God. They were trying to allow the law to wash them away of their sins, to fix their sin problem so that they can be acceptable to God. But that's not the purpose of the law, right? What's the purpose of the law? Well, they already told us in verse 1. The law, like all the tabernacle and all the other old covenant system, was a shadow. And what do shadows do? Well, they prefigure, they foreshadow the substance, right? Shadows are pointing the way to Jesus, like a finger or like a sign pointing to Jesus, right? And the problem is that these Jewish Christians were obsessed with the shadow. I mean, it's like a little kid. Have you ever tried to point to something with a little kid? You point to something, you say, wow, look at that, look how amazing that is. And what do they focus on? They focus on the finger, right? They focus on your hand. And all the time you say, no, look there. That's what the writer is saying. Don't focus on the finger. Don't focus on the shadow. Don't focus on the sign. Look ahead to Jesus. Don't miss the point. Look through the law, through the sacrifices, to Jesus as I intended. He's the only one that can wash away sin. He's the only one that can allow you to approach God in Christ and nothing else. Now, if you've grown up in Judaism and had family members in Judaism, this might be very offensive to you. You might hear this and, and hear this purpose of the law and think, well, why not focus on the law? I mean, it seemed to work fine for generations, didn't it? Our forefathers, our, our family depended on this. God gave us the law. Why, would he, why did He give us a broken system? Why would He give us something that had a whole different purpose? How do we know that Jesus can allow us to approach God in the ways that the law can't? How do we know that Jesus is better than the law? Where's your proof? And the writer of the book of Hebrews says, here's my proof. Verse 2. This is the limitations of these sacrifices. The limitations. And it starts with the repetitive nature of these sacrifices. Verse 2. Otherwise. Now that word is 
That word is a hypothetical type of word, right? He's trying to set up a hypothetical situation because just before that, he said the law and the sacrifices could what? Could never perfect those who draw near. Now he's saying, well, look, if they could, otherwise, if they could perfect them, would they not have ceased to be offered? Verse 2, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Basically saying, if the old covenant sacrifice is truly cleansed, if they truly saved, why do they keep being offered? Why do they keep having go, going back to them year after year? If they would have worked for cleansing, wouldn't they have stopped? You think he's making an analogy here, kind of like, I was thinking maybe of medicine. Right? You go to the doctor, you get some medicine. We're, we're thinking about these things a lot more these days, aren't we? Well, how do you know that the medicine the doctor's given you is actually working? You start getting better, right? Your symptoms start to go away. You, you start to get to the place where you no longer need the medicine. How do you know if the medicine's not working? You don't get better. Your symptoms don't improve, right? You, you have to stay on the medicine continually. That's essentially what he's trying to say here. These old covenant sacrifices were offered year after year for generation after generation. How do we know they didn't work? They never fixed their sin problem. They never cleared their consciences. They never cleared their guilty consciences in a way that they stopped sinning. They might have covered over sin for a time in the sense that God overlooked them. God would pass over them to to give his wrath at a later point in the future, like it says in Romans 1. God was patient for a time there, but they never truly sanctified them. They never truly cleansed them. Why? Because the sacrifices were broken? Because they were doing it wrong? No. Because these sacrifices were never meant to cleanse them. They were limited to a specific purpose, a specific intention designed by God. Not to fix their sin problem, right? But to do what? Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder, a reminder of sins every year. Four, in verse 4, sums the whole thing up. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see what he's saying about these old covenant, these limited sacrifices? God's purpose, God's intention with these sacrifices was a reminder of sin. To remind the people that they had a sin problem that they could not fix themselves. With the number of sacrifices or with any kind of atonement they could offer with their own, their own hands. To remind the people that God is holy and they are not and they do not belong in His presence without bloodshed. To remind the people that the wages of sin is death. Could you imagine the scene going to Israel year after year, going to the, the temple and seeing the blood, smelling the blood, reminding you of what your sin has cost? And it was a reminder in such a way that it would point forward to a greater sacrifice. The need for a greater sacrifice than any blood of a bull and a goat. See, it was as if, as if God said, I want you to go to the doctor every single year. And I want you to take medicine, but not to get better, but to remind you that you're sick. Going to the doctor, almost like chemotherapy, opening old wounds to remind them of their need of forgiveness, their need of a final sacrifice. 
know for some of us, this can sound like a cruel joke in a way. God is almost torturing His people by reminding them of their sins. He's giving them this, this system that doesn't really cleanse them. Almost like God is rubbing their face in their sin. I would imagine that some people even feel that way about church. It breaks my heart when people walk away from church when they're reminded that they're a sinner. Or when people realize they're a sinner in a fresh way, they're tempted not to come to church at all. Maybe even that's something that you struggle with. You grow weary of hearing that you're broken, that you're a failure. And church is, in a way, a reminder of our sinfulness. But church is also where you're going to hear that you have a Savior. Just like these sacrifices, they were a reminder of their sinfulness, but they were also a shadow of the great sacrifice to come. They were meant to point to Jesus along with all the rest of the Old Covenant. Right? The the temple and the sacrifices and the promises, the seed of the woman, this great Davidic king that would come, the offspring of Abraham, the great high priest, the sympathetic high priest. These shadows would point the way to that greater sacrifice. Oh, this wasn't a cruel joke at all. It wasn't a false hope or an illusion in any way. It offered true hope that a Messiah would come one day to be the ultimate sacrifice, to be the final sacrifice in a way that these blood of bulls and goats could never be. You know, I can't help to think that, in some ways, this is a bit like the Lord's Supper for us. In the way that they looked forward through these sacrifices to Jesus, we look back through the Lord's Supper to Jesus as well. Now, don't misunderstand me here, because this can go really bad (laughs) in some ways. I'm not saying that the, the Lord's table is a new sacrifice. It's not a new sacrifice. It's not re-crucifying Jesus every time we come to the Lord's table like the Roman Catholics believe. That's not what I'm saying at all. And I'm not saying that the Lord's Supper is just a reminder of sin. And that's all it is. We talk every week about it being a means of grace to commune with our God and also to look forward to the day of His coming. But one function of the Lord's table is to get a visual of what our sin has cost to see the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for us, to be reminded that our sin has brought death. It needed death to atone for what we've done. But as the Israelites look forward only with this reminder of sin, we get to look back knowing that Jesus has come. What they saw with the eyes of faith, we've seen through the Word. We've seen through the Messiah coming We see through the substance that Jesus has come and our sins are truly washed away, truly cleansed for, truly atoned for. And the Lord's table isn't just a reminder of sin. It's not just going to the doctor to take the medicine to remind us that we're sick. The Lord's table is like going to the doctor on the day of our anniversary to remind ourselves that we're healed, that we never have to take medicine again, that our, our cancer of sin is done away with forever. And we get to rejoice in the one who healed us at the Lord's table. The final sacrifice. Something that these old covenant shadows could never accomplish. So let's look at this last sacrifice. Now that we've seen the limited sacrifice of these old covenant sacrifices, let's look at the last sacrifice to see how much more he stands out. How much greater he is than these old covenant sacrifices of bulls and goats. Look at verse 5 with me. Consequently, that's that 
kind of therefore in conclusion, right? He's, he's drawing from what he just said. All the, the pictures of these, these temporary, these limited sacrifices, especially verse 4, when he said it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now he says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, verse 4, he said. Who said? Christ said. Now, this is going to feel like a small, subtle point, but it's an important point. He's going to quote Psalm 40 after this, but he's quoting Psalm 40 as the words of Jesus. Now, do you know who wrote Psalm 40? I'll give you a clue. It's not Jesus. If you go back to Psalm 40, you look at the top, it says a Psalm of David. But this writer is saying, no, those are the words of Jesus, because Jesus is the greater Davidic king. Because David was even predicting the words of Jesus. He's teaching us how to read our Old Testament to see Christ in every page through the Psalms as we've been going through the Psalms as well. And so what does Jesus say through the mouth of David in Psalm 40? Look at the middle of verse 5. Sacrifices and offerings you, that's the Father, have not desired. But a body have you prepared for me, that's Jesus, In burnt offerings, in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. This is describing a conversation between the Son and the Father about His incarnation. About the purpose for which Jesus came into this world. They're discussing sacrifices. Did you notice that? He used four words for sacrifices. Sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings uses these four terms to describe every possible offering in the Old Covenant system. Well, what's Jesus saying? He's saying every kind of offering that you can give, all the offerings, all the sacrifices, all those shadows of the Old Covenant, Father, they don't satisfy you. You don't take pleasure in them. You don't desire them. They're not, they're not what you truly want from mankind. They're not enough. To which you should think, well, Why not? Didn't God give us those? Didn't God command his people to give those sacrifices? Why would the the sacrifices not satisfy him now? What's wrong with the sacrifices? Well, the idea in Psalm 40 and the idea that the writer of the Hebrews is trying to draw out is that this idea that's all over the Old Testament is that God wants obedience, devotion with the sacrifices. That's been his intention the whole time. God's always wanted all of his people, right? Their hearts, their affections, their intentions, their actions, and their worship. He wants all of them along with their sacrifice. Without obedience, without devotion, it's just emptiness. It's uselessness. It's hypocrisy, right? It's just lie, whitewashed tombs. Isn't this what Jesus got onto the Pharisees about so often? Jesus says in Matthew 15, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Their worship is useless. It's vanity. Why? Because their hearts are far from me. Because they don't belong to me. Like I said, this is all over the Old Testament. Psalm 51, as David confesses his sin, listen to what he says. For you will, excuse me, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Saying, God, that's what you're after. 
a broken heart, a heart that longs to obey, longs to love you, not just empty sacrifices. In Isaiah 1, verse 10 through 16, God really goes after the people of Israel. He gets very aggressive and he basically says, look, your sacrifices, I hate them. I hate your new moons. I hate your feasts. In fact, I'm growing weary of them. Why? Because when you spread out your hands, even though you make many prayers, your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Say, look, you're giving me sacrifices. You're obeying, but you're just going through the motions. You have blood on your hands. You're not giving your life to me. You're not giving me your obedience, your, your devotion, your affections. Just empty sacrifices. So God's always demanded obedience and devotion with sacrifices, right? That's what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to draw out. And guess what Jesus offers? Obedience and devotion with his sacrifices. He offers his life to do the will of God in his body to be broken as the ultimate sacrifice. Look at verse 5, the second part, as we see the body part of the sacrifice. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body, a human body, have you prepared for me? This is talking about the incarnation. Jesus took on flesh. Why? To be the last sacrifice. He took on a human body. Why? So his body could be broken. This is something that the bulls and goats could never do. They could never represent us. They weren't made in God's image like we were made in God's image. They weren't given the commandments of God. They weren't given the responsibility to declare God's glory in the world as His image bearers. But Jesus came in our very flesh and blood. He came as our high priest, not just with an offering to walk into the Holy of Holies, but with his own body to put on the altar itself. He gave his body up to be broken as this final act of his high priestly ministry. But that wouldn't be enough. His body wouldn't be enough without his devotion, without his life, his perfect life in our place, right? So look what's next, verse 7. He doesn't just offer his body. He offers his life, his perfect life that makes his offering appealing to God. Verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Then jump down to verse 9. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus has come to obey in our place, to do the will of God that we failed to do. We've been failing to do it since the garden, right? Adam failed to do it. We followed in his suit. We failed to do the will of God since we were born. Really, even in the womb, we were broken and fallen from there. And this is something that the blood of bulls and goats could never do. The the bulls and goats could never do the will of God. They weren't willing participants in their offering. They didn't offer themselves up. They didn't try to do the will of God, right? It wasn't voluntary at all. They were just grabbed and offered up. But Jesus came into this world not just to break his body for us, but to do the will of God. Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. He obeyed in our place. He fulfilled every law, 
every commandment perfectly for sinners like us. This is the work of our great high priest. Jesus says this over and over throughout the Gospels, especially in John. John 4 says, Jesus actually says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. That was the very reason I became a man. And even at the very end of his life, just the night before he was going to the cross, do you remember what he said in the garden? As he was sweating blood, he prays this, Matthew 26. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Every time you see Jesus do that, recognize that every moment you've had the chance to do that, we fail. We said, I will do it my way. We've turned from God, disgraced God, but Jesus said, your will be done, Lord. He did it perfectly in our place. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the one that can offer his body, his human body as our true representative, and he offers his obedience, his perfect life in our place. And what's the result of this sacrifice? How does this all end up? How is this better than all the old covenant sacrifices? Look at verse 9. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that's the old covenant sacrifices, right? In order to establish the second, the last sacrifice of Jesus. All those old covenant systems, sacrifices are done. Why are they done? Because they didn't do a good enough job? No. Because they were never meant to cleanse. They were meant to point the way to the last sacrifice, right? To prefigure him. And now that Jesus is here, we don't need the sign anymore. They won't do it. It's not enough. It's like like going on a trip. You go on a vacation or something. When you get to your final destination, you don't need the signs anymore telling you where to go or how far it is. No one would go back to look at the sign. We've reached our final destination in Jesus. He is the last sacrifice. He's the one that they've been waiting for. The one that could truly atone and cleanse for sin. Look at verse 10. And by that will, the will that Jesus offered, we have been sanctified. We have been made holy. Oh, this isn't talking about some progressive sanctification here. That we gradually grow to be more like Jesus. No, this is a moment. A a true cleansing. An ultimate atonement that Jesus has brought us. We are acceptable to God. Truly cleansed in a way that those old covenant sacrifices could never do. We have been sanctified. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all. Jesus did everything we ever needed. Everything we failed to do. Everything that the old covenant system could never do by offering up his body and his life to do the will of God so he could be the once for all sacrifice that we desperately needed. Now the only question is, do you trust in that sacrifice? Are you, are you clinging to Jesus as the last sacrifice, as your only hope? 
Because every single one of us has broken God's law. Every single one of us is in a hopeless place. We have no resources. We're bankrupt to fix ourselves. If we could offer blood and bulls and goats, it wouldn't do anything. We could offer our own righteousness, our, our own feelings, our own devotion. It would do nothing because we're broken sinners. It's only in the blood of Christ that we can be truly and finally cleansed. Well, if you've never trusted in Jesus this morning, if you're not trusting Him as your only hope, if you're trying to work your way to God or work to impress God or just trying to be a good person, it's never enough. You have to trust the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He's the only way we can be right with God. Trust Him this morning. Repent of your sins. If you don't know what that looks like, talk to your grace group leader. Talk to the person that you came with. I'm sure they would love to talk to you about it. For those of us that are trusting in Jesus, do you really see Him as your last sacrifice? Do you really believe that the words Jesus said on the cross are true? That it is finished. That there's nothing you can add. Sometimes I wonder if those are the hardest words that Jesus said to believe. We are so prone to want to add something. So prone to want to contribute in some way, aren't we? So prone to want to add something on to what Jesus has done to make us right with God, to make us acceptable with God. And it's just legalism. It actually diminishes the final nature of the sacrifice, the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. I love how Sinclair Ferguson defines legalism. He says, legalism is an attempt to smuggle my character into the grace of God. To say, yeah, Lord, I believe Jesus is enough, but what about that patience I just showed there? Does that count for anything? Does that make me right with you? Does Does that please you in a way that earns me some points? Can I feel a certain way or, or do something that can make me more acceptable to you, God? Or maybe you struggle with things like this. Maybe you said or thought, you know, I know that God forgives me. I just can't forgive myself. Think about those words for a second. Do you have higher standards than God? God says that Jesus is enough, but, but we don't. We have this need to feel like we want to contribute. We want to own some of this. We want to have some kind of self-respect here that we have to make up for how we've messed up, earn our right to come to the Lord, to appear before Him, or to come to the Lord's table. Or we have to feel really sorrowful for our sin before we ask for forgiveness. So I'll go read my Bible. I'll go do something. I'll go try to make myself feel a certain way before I can be forgiven. Or maybe we go the other way and say, no, I have to feel this certain kind of joy and excitement. I've got to be pumped up with worship so that I can feel close to God to get something else that Jesus didn't offer. It's all legalism. It's all the Protestant version of penance. And it diminishes the work of Christ. Oh, if these idols, these things, these intentions creep up in our heart to think that Jesus isn't enough, Repent. Fight it. Because Jesus truly is enough. It is finished. We can't take away from his work. We can't add to it in any way. All we can do is open up our empty hands to receive it in faith. He is the last sacrifice to wash us free of any sin and the only sacrifice we ever need.
Let me pray. Father, thank you for your son, our great high priest, the final and sufficient sacrifice, the only one that we will ever need. Father, we repent of any way that we want to add to that sacrifice, any way that we believe we can contribute to being closer to you or receiving your grace. Help us never to diminish the work of Christ, but to cling to him as broken, sinful people in desperate need of his grace, but also in full assurance, knowing that his blood has truly washed away our sin forever. Oh God, let Jesus be our hope for now and on into eternity. Let us sing his praises with our lips and with our lives every chance we get so that the world may know that Jesus is sufficient, that Jesus saves. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen.